Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are chief U.S. commentator and columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times, Ed Luce, and the Philadelphia Inquirer's national political reporter, Jonathan Tamari. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, The Economist Checks and Balance Podcast, Real Paper, and The Jordan Harbinger Show in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, uh, you got to get me out of my doldrums. I don't see a red wave coming on November 8th. But it does look like a red tide. Republicans picking up 20 to 25 House seats and having at least an even shot at taking the Senate. Maybe even some critical state offices in addition to governor, like Democrat or like secretaries of state. I mean, there's no question that Biden is a drag, uh, but the economic issues and abortion really haven't changed much. One slightly helps the Republicans, the other helps the Democrats more. But the GOP attacks on crime and the border seem to be resonating in a number of contests. So tell me I'm being too pessimistic. I can't. Oh, wow. I I mean, (laughs) well, I I guess if you were saying, let's wait and see, that I do hear some reports that there's some real Democratic enthusiasm. And what happened in 94 and what happened in 2010 and 14 is there were – Elections that were really decided by turnout, that, that the Republicans were very jazzed up, the Democrats were demoralized and didn't show up. The only thing I think that can hold us to, I don't I wouldn't say manageable losses, but could hold it to the actual margin is, is that our voters are still pretty fired up. But, you know, a lot of these things could go the other way. I'm, you know, Georgia could go the other way. Just don't assume Her- Herschel Walker's going to lose, not for one minute. And... uh you know, when you, when you have that many that are on the edge and a, a little tilt the other way can can really hurt you. And I think also what's going on is Democrats are actually doing a little better in red and purple states than they are in blue states. I mean, I think they're having a big blue state problem. And it, it, it all, it, it's 75% of this is crime. You knew it was coming. People told you, not to brag on myself, I wrote a piece in the spring of 2021 saying, get in front of this. You have a good argument. And to a, to, when I would talk to people, they said, well, we just can't do that. Well, why can't you? Because we just can't. Well, you, you didn't. And you've completely lost the argument. They've lost the argument so much that you hear people saying we shouldn't even engage it. That's how bad we've lost it. And there was no need. We had the record. It all started at the end of Trump's watch. It it started more in red states than blue states. We just ceded the freaking argument. What geniuses we have. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, uh, you know, as well as saying, you know, I'm not for defunding the police, which almost, you know, only a handful of crazy lefties are. Uh, you ought to say, I'm in some places I want to have more police. I want to have more accountable and better trained police. 
uh, and we ought to vote for more cops. But you're right. They just duck the issue. Same thing with the border. I mean, I am very much pro-immigration. I think we ought to have some kind of a, uh, you know, legislation, if that's ever possible. We certainly ought to take care of, the, you know, the DACA uh, kids. Uh, but we also you know, can't have open borders. And that's an issue you have to take on. And a lot of Democrats have just ducked and they're paying a price. Well, they should have had the, the version of the 93 crime bill, too. Now, the Democrats, oh, that was a terrible bill. It, it, it actually had one terrible provision that was not even in the original bill. It was put there as a result of John Casey in, in order to get Republican votes that, you know, the states would be rewarded with prison money for having these mandatory sentences. Well, be, 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 that's a bell you would like to unring, and you could, but you, you it, it have a, a build on the 93 crime bill, and then where you had that enhanced sentencing provision, you, 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 you put police reform in it, you put sentencing reform, you can do anything you want. But, but it just became, you know, the, if you look at what happened after the crime bill was passed, you see dramatic decreases. You could argue causation and correlation, but don't argue correlation with me because you're going to lose. And you could have built on that. It would have been right there. And you could have talked about reform, and prison reform, sentencing reform, police reform. That would have been fine. And, and you know, have another 100,000 cops provision in there. You could have done anything, right? You could have had 3 a.m. in the morning basketball if you wanted to. But, but, but get out in front of it, and they just refused to do it. Just said, we can't do that. And I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And, you know, and I said that, and I'm just not to brag, but it's just true. I said, either you own this issue or this issue is going to own you. And no, look almost, at what's happening. Almost everywhere they've been on the defensive on both crime and, 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 and the border. No, there was yeah. no re The border is, you know, I don't know what to answer. You know, but people ask me, and, and the truth of the matter is you got to be careful because this country needs migrants. Well, absolutely. And look, it's demagogue, and there's no question we do. Right. But the problem is when Kamala Harris says the border is secure, people just don't believe that. Well, and so, so, right. so, you know, right. I, I, think, I think the administration, some of it is rhetoric, uh, some of it's policy, but in any event, it's clearly hurting this fall. If you look at, if you look at a number of Republican ads attacking us on crime as opposed to the border, it's probably 50 to, 50 to 1. Oh, there's a lot of border attacks now. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, there there's really some, is. They don't, they don't also, have the issue. Also no, in the base. Near. And speaking of the border, I, here's what gets me. I'm, I'm going to go to Arizona for a minute. Carrie Lake, former TV anchor. She is a very telegenic, uh, quick, uh, uh, you know, debater, if you will. But James, I mean, this is a person who's trafficked with white nationalists and anti-Semites. She lies, about, I mean, outrightly lies about election fraud. Uh, I mean, Jonathan Carl did a good interview with her, and she just lied one time after another. Yet she appears to be on the way to winning. Uh, and even worse, uh, she may bring in, help bring in some, the Secretary of State, Attorney General down there. Arizona is not a far-right state, but if things hold, they're going to elect some really extreme right-wing people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I, you know we, we're, told, we're told that Katie Hobbs, well, she's pretty, you know, she's pretty good. She's not great, but, you know, she was Secretary of State. She's qualified. Uh, 
she wouldn't debate. Best as I can see, I don't know where her campaign is. And, uh, you know, hopefully that Mark Kelly can keep his lead, but it, I don't, nothing is a given right now. Yeah, yeah. And nothing. No, I think... I think Mark Kelly's going to keep his lead because he's running against, you know, a fringe character also. Well, I don't know. Well, she's fringe too, and Katie, I don't know. I, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's, it's utterly frightening. I'm just hopefully that the Democrats see what, what we're seeing and come out and vote, and they could pull this thing down a little bit. Okay, James, let's get out of the doldrums. Let's talk about the World Series. Uh, I think it's a really good one. I mean, the Houston Astros, probably the best team in baseball, even though the Dodgers had a better record. And the Phillies, the hottest team in baseball. Both teams have good pitching and have some terrific hitters. How do you see it? Well, first of all, I really like what the Phillies have done. I'm not anywhere close to a Philly hater. Uh, you know, the Astros 2017 was just disgusting. And But... I'm slightly pulling for the Astros for one reason only, Dusty Baker. Because all, everybody, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you, you just love Dusty. And particularly, you know, when you saw him in Washington and, and what he's done with that team. The thing that, the reason that I would pick, would bet on Houston and, you know, watch out because remember the 2019 Nats. When a team gets hot, don't look at their overall record, but I mean, the, the, the Phillies are hot and they know it. But, man, when you look at that, it, you, you, you know, you look at Nolan, Zach Wheeler, uh, that's, that, that's, that's two really money pitchers you got, but you still have them in uh, Famber and, and, and Verlander, who's, you know, we, we worship Max, and he's the greatest ever. I don't know, I, I don't know that Verlander's not every bit as good as Max Scherzer. I mean, I, I'd have to go look at advanced statistics or something. It's good contest. The Houston bullpen is just shut down. I mean, I they, 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 in those games, and you know, they they throw so many pitches. I, I the Phillies are hotter, but the the Houston bullpen, man, they, they throw snowballs at you. You know, we used to talk about the need for a great closer. God, they have a great fifth inning guy, sixth inning guy. So they all throw yeah. 100 miles an hour. They all have ERAs of two or under. I mean, it's just unbelievable what they've assembled there. I agree with you. I'm I'm mixed on this because I'm cheering for Dusty Baker, but I I was raised outside of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is having one of its great sports moment. The Eagles, as they call them, there are undefeated. The hockey team is apparently pretty good. Uh, the 76ers got off to a bad start, but they're coming back. And uh, those Philadelphia sport, sports fans uh, are the roughest in the country. Uh, they're the ones that uh, you know. Through snowballs at Santa Claus uh, <laughs> at an Eagles game, but boy, do they have a lot to celebrate these days. But it, they, they really do, and you know, you got to take your hat off to Bryce Harper. I mean, you talk about, you know, somebody we saw play a lot. You know, it was exciting. You, 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 you know, when he goes at bat, you stop what you're doing to pay attention, and he just become so much more exciting. And then, you know, for an LSU fan, I mean, watching Aaron Nola pitch against Alec Bregman, I mean, that's, you don't get, except there's not many college colleges can put, you know, put a pitch a hitter combo like that up. Uh, so well, I, I'm I looking thought forward to it. The Philly-San Diego uh, series was a uh, Washington Nationals alumni contest. Oh, was uh, it? You know, uh, Soto and uh, and Bell against Harper and Schwarber. By the way, Kyle, Kyle Schwarber is amazing. I, look, I would rather, I, if I, my preferred outcome with the Astros in seven, 
but I would rather Philadelphia win in seven than the Astros in six. I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, first of all, I'm pretty, first I want seven games. Second, by just a hair, I want the Astros. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really, but we can come and revisit so, it next yeah, week. <laughs> I want to make one more point about that because I was watching a, uh, Tony and Mike's, and, and Tony made a good point. Why didn't we start this thing today? There was no reason. I mean, it was the Wall Street days, except it's not like the Super Bowl. You can adjust them. If you said, hey, we're not going to start Friday in Houston, we're going to start Wednesday, people would have still gone to the game. And you would have the night to yourself, Wednesday, you have Thursday to yourself. All right? And now they, they, you know, they're competing with the NFL and college football on Saturday and Sunday. It's such an empty feeling that I had on Monday and Tuesday night. Right. You know, well, yeah, I'm going to turn on a baseball game. No, there's no baseball. you got to wait till Friday. Um, right. It's idiotic. Okay. We and, will- and once you saw, you can adjust it. You know, and that was assuming that if both go to seven games, you wait to Friday. But one goes five, one goes 40, end of the same day. Shit, just play ball. Well, the only Keep good going. thing. The only good thing about that is we can probably come back to the subject again next next week okay go dusty we can agree on that Hey, James, we have not only one of our favorite guests, but also our most frequent, Ed Luce, columnist for the Financial Times. He really elevates two old hacks. He's the American columnist, but just as expert on his native UK. Ed, it's great to have you back. Uh, Great Britain has its fifth prime minister in six years. They're tied with Italy for that dubious distinction. Uh, it's 42-year-old Rishi Sunak. Tapped not by the country or even the conservative party, but by his fellow MPs. Not exactly a mandate from that. You said, I saw you wrote that one big advantage he has is he's following four underperformers. And he is he is the least unqualified of the candidates. He has a pretty tall order to pull the Brits and his party out of the doldrums, doesn't he? Is a very tall order. I mean, I, I was interested in um, the three words he used. I think it was accountability, integrity, and professionalism. And in a, the implicit message being, well, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson for sure were neither of those things. Um, but actually, Theresa May and David Cameron weren't either, hence four underperformers. So, you know, it's good first rule of jobs. Uh, start with low expectations um, and, uh, you know, if you can just simply be honest um, whilst in Downing Street and, you know, uh, and not do something that will basically explode the markets, then you're already succeeding. Um, but the early signs are, are bad. You know, the, the, his job, like any conservative leader's job, is not to unite the country. It's to unite the party. And that is impossible. Therefore, he will fail. You know, he, he's the son of Indian immigrants, the first prime minister of color. And also with his wife, he is enormously wealthy, maybe the wealthiest and one of the wealthiest uh, couples in uh, Great Britain. Uh, some say even richer than the king. Uh, again, my favorite British analyst, that would be Ed Luce, noted that his problems may be m- more of class than race. You know, explain. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's Winchester Public School, one of the 
poshest boarding schools. Um, he's at Goldman Sachs, he's Oxford, he's Stanford, he's married a billionaire's daughter, Narayana Murthy, who founded Infosys, one of the great, um, you know, Indian IT companies. Um, so, you know, that in itself sort of raises British hackles. It's a very class-conscious country. Um, but the fact that this same guy will be imposing spending cuts on people. This is going to be a really, really tough um, budget that his chance is going to have to produce in the next three weeks. Yeah, we're going to get austerity and we're going to get stringency. And, you know, we have a prime minister whose wife was non-domiciled for tax reasons um, whilst he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So the joke went, you know, well, if the Chancellor can't even collect taxes from his wife, then how is he going to collect it from the nation? So the, the threat to him will initially be from the left. But if if he does sort of push an open door, uh, increasing immigration, which Britain needs, then the threat will start to come from the right. Then his race will become, unfortunately, a salient factor. Our, our dear friend Boris Johnson uh, Ed, said he dropped out because he wasn't, it wasn't his time. Of course, the real reason was he didn't have the votes. But for all of his failings, he's not going away. He won't go away. And, and, and Sonic is going to have to watch over his shoulder or maybe check his food taster because Boris, it seems to me, is like Bibi Netanyahu. He never, he never vanishes. No, he never does. Um, you know, he was evicted from Downing Street in July because he was, at that point, the most unpopular prime minister in British history since polling began. Um, Liz Truss rapidly overtook him on that. But... We shouldn't forget that he had lost any of the sort of booming sort of bottomy that you know he'd generated with the electorate in the 2019 landslide election, and he's also lost Jeremy Corbyn as uh, you know the hopeless leader of the opposition. So the conditions for Boris's return are not really there, I don't think, uh, in the near future. But as you say, you know he's like. Um, uh, he's 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 fairly indestructible and he's utterly shameless. Uh, he he cannot be shamed. Um, and even though you know Britain's terrible economic performance um, is going to continue, and it's it's being left behind by the rest of Europe. And even though he is more than any other person the face of this disastrous Brexit that Britain's embarked upon, nothing will shame him. So you're right, he'll, he'll stick around and, and some opportunity will arise, maybe sooner than we think. Yeah. James Carville. So, Ed, I look at the current polling from there, it seemed as though conservatives are just in, in beyond the bottom of the toilet they're losing like 30 points. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they have to call an election by sometimes in 2025. End of 2024. End of 2024. All right. So we know that the Labour Party has been historically uh, inept at, at, you know, taking opportunities. What's the situation with the opposition right now? Um, So Keir Starmer is, you know, what I think of as more a continental, uh, particularly sort of Germany, Benelux kind of politician. He's boring. Um, but he, he's competent. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think that that Jeremy Corbyn penalty, um, and Jeremy Corbyn is a big factor in all of, of, of Britain's sort of dystopian um, story in the last few years, because, 
you know, he didn't campaign to remain in Europe. Well, he did nominally, but it was so half, it was so passive aggressive. He could have been the difference of that referendum. Um, so thankfully, Labour doesn't have the Corbyn problem anymore. Um, I think, you know, Starmer is taking the sort of never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake approach to politics, which is probably sound. It's not particularly exciting. You know, he's uh, very risk averse. He's saying Labour will make Brexit work, which is an oxymoron. It's just not workable. It's not going to produce higher incomes. Um, uh, but it's probably good politics at this point. Just let the Tories you know, uh, really destroy their brand and maybe have a Canadian-style scenario where the Conservatives are out of power for a very long time and, and wait for the election, which Labour will win. So is Brexit just it's done? There's no looking back. Britain's just going to have to live with it. Is there any chance that we could revisit this or are you just stuck with it? I think for the time being, we're stuck with it. If you get a real blowout election, if today's polls are anywhere near being the case when the election does actually happen and Tories are down to like 100 seats, well, then you could get a sort of rewriting of, uh, of things. But there'll be two problems. One is Europeans really don't want to go through the headache of having Britain carving opt-outs and having a la carte menu approach to Europe again. They really don't want to go through that. So Britain wouldn't be able to rejoin Europe. It would have to ask to rejoin the single European market, which would bring all the same economic benefits. But we would have no say over the rules. We would be a rule taker, not a rule maker. And up to 2016, uh, actually up to 2020, when the withdrawal agreement was completed, Britain was a rule maker. And it was arguably second only to Germany in being the most influential rule maker. So it would be a, a, a good economic outcome for British businesses we'd get back to frictionless trade and so forth. But it would be a terrible irony of a long quest to reclaim sovereignty and power, um, ending up being completely impotent at the end of it. So as I recall, yourself and like people like Martin Wolf and other people at the Financial Times were very, uh, thought that Brexit was a bad idea in or not for has it turned out to be a, a, about as bad as you expected or is it worse than you expected well there was something um called project fear which was a very good label the pro-brexit people attached to the remainers um and the remainers did exaggerate they said there was going to be a recession uh, you know immediately following brexit um and it would be a market collapse and there wasn't it's much more like a slow puncture but we've now had, um, you know, um, six years since Brexit. And a slow puncture over six years ends up looking like a crash. And so Britain was the second fastest growing um, country in the G7 in 2016. It's now the lowest growing by far. It's the only G7 country whose economy is still smaller today than it was before the pandemic. Productivity growth is going into reverse. Um, a colleague of mine wrote a really interesting um, piece about how there are now fewer robots washing cars, automated car washing, and more humans doing it because the cost of humans is cheaper. Wages have dropped year after year. So um, austerity is the result. I mean, you, James, famously said you be reincarnated, you come back as the bond market. Right. The bond market is winning this. 
Um, the bond market is, is what's really governing Britain right now because the actual people governing Britain are making so many unforced errors. Um, the, 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 in the name of free market, the free market, the, they are being defeated by the free market. So, yeah, the, the bond market, when it weighs in, it, it, it is the king. <laughs> just, just understand that. It's been dormant for a long time and people have forgotten about it, but they're not, they haven't forgotten it now. So, I, and this is a, not a very nice thing to tell a, a Brit, and our show is produced by a Brit, but the Britain that you were born in to the Britain today, it seems to me, and Aurora West has faced some deterioration, but maybe Britain's position in the world has deteriorated more than any other country over the last 50 years or so. Is, is that a fair... Am I being unfair to your home country? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'd say Russia would probably be first to... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, but yeah. it would be second to Russia. Um, it's hard to dispute that. Um, you know, the empire was gone by the time I was born, or almost right. all it was. Um, and therefore, you know, logic should suggest that decline, you know, had become uh, normalized and that you can then get on with, you know, being a post-imperial nation. But right. decline's a national pastime. We seem to sort of extend and, and, and finesse and add ironies and wheels to it. And um, I'm afraid we've got another 10 years, unless there's some miracle with EU relations, we've got another 10 years of decline to adjust to. And therefore, it's great for sense of humor. I mean, British political humor will continue to be the world. Before I turn it over, I just have to say, the head of lettuce might be in the top five all-time first ballot Hall of Fame British humor. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to know the story about how they came up with the head of lettuce. But I, I got to say, your people... I mean, some of the, the humor, and I, I think British hum, gallows humor is probably the best part. <laughs> it's inversely related to decline, so it just keeps getting better. Um, one of the one of the lamest tweets, and it was late, was from me on this, which was, "Let us remember, Britain wouldn't have hit the iceberg if it had voted to Romaine." <laughs> I think one of the reasons is that British humor is so good. During Watergate, Mark Russell, the great uh, American satirist, used to say, it's easy. You don't have to write your own material. It's rip and read. When you have something that's bad, it's easy. Let me just return to a couple of things. First of all, Brexit, uh, you know, you've talked about, well, there's no, no, no going back right now. But this prime minister still faces some difficult issues there, doesn't he? Like dealing with the Northern Ireland dispute that could cause him problems. Serious problems. Um, I mean, if, if he is what he claims to be and what thus far the markets are taking him at his word to be, then he won't want to pick a fight at this economic stage of Britain's woeful recent economic story with the EU, with the largest market in the world on our doorstep. Um, and because the EU has shown itself to be consistently united in, in support of its member state, Ireland, quite rightly. Um, if, however, Sunak feels that he doesn't have the trust of the right of the Conservative Party, which is the perennial problem of every prime minister uh, since John Major, um, then he might feel he needs to throw them red meat every now and then. And this is the easiest sort of scrap of red meat available is the Northern Ireland Protocol. It, it, um, it was a bad 
sign yesterday when he said unity or death. What he meant was Conservative Party unity or death. He didn't mean British. Um, that he then followed that swiftly by appointing Suella Braverman, um, who is the most right-wing anti-immigrant. Um, you know, basically, if she were white, she would be being called a racist, but she's an Indian immigrant too. And he made her home secretary a week after she'd been forced out of the job. Um, she's the one who said she dreams of... Uh, it's her dream to send uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda before Christmas. Really nasty stuff, nasty, nasty stuff. And um, she's known as Cruella um, because it is cruel stuff. Um, that's a bad sign. That that was already a sign that, you know, he feels he needs to appease the unappeasable um, right of the, the Johnsonian wing. Um, and if that's, if, if keeping the party united is stronger than sense of duty, responsibility and professionalism towards the country, then he's really screwed and it's going to happen pretty quickly and, and James's bond markets will decapitate him. Ed, just very briefly for our listeners, explain to them what the Northern Ireland issue is, the protocol issue is. Well, in order to preserve the Good Friday Agreement, which um, for 25 years has kept peace on the island of Ireland, um, there was an open border um, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. In order to preserve peace and to allow goods and people to can keep moving freely across that non-border, to keep it borderless, um, Britain drew the um, agreed to draw the customs line um, across the Irish Sea rather than across the island of Ireland. And that means that Northern Ireland remains integrated, the Good Friday Agreement remains. And, uh, and the unionists in Northern Ireland have been complaining about this. Um, and um, so of the right wing of the Conservative Party. It's very telling that um, the fastest growing part of Britain, by far, is Northern Ireland, because it's in the single market. Right. If you want proof of it's the only part of Britain that's keeping pace with EU growth. So naturally, the right wants to get rid of that. Um, and uh, if you threaten the Good Friday Agreement, you know, you threaten to re um, exhume the worst and longest running um, insurgency and, and low level civil war within the European Union. Of course, it's not going to countenance that. Um, so. Um, uh, I pray he doesn't, but unfortunately, Liz Truss did, Boris Johnson did, Theresa May sort of did. It's something they cannot resist as a way of showing the right that they are unthinkingly um, hardline British nationalists. Well, the other th thing is that, yeah, when he, if he has an austerity program, that may go over well with the markets. But with astronomical energy prices and a cold winter and struggling folks, austerity may be politically perilous for this new prime minister. It, yeah, either uh, either path is politically perilous. It should be said, though, that the, the, the government under Liz Truss, but he'll keep it, have announced a big energy subsidy, a massive £60 billion, um, w which will keep bills down this winter. Um, so the energy piece shouldn't be the problem, but there'll be cuts everywhere else, cuts to child support payments, cuts probably to pensions, even though that's their base, um, really, because Conservative Party is very much the older party, cuts to all kinds of public services at a time when wages are declining. And Britain actually has stagflation. It's got double-digit inflation. It's above 10%, and unemployment's going up. So... But if he doesn't, you know, show fiscal discipline, the markets will 
swiftly dispatch his prime ministership. So I wouldn't want this job uh, if I were him. I wouldn't either. I'm going to try to slightly, not modify, but address what James said earlier about how the you know UK has probably gone down more than any other place uh, other than Russia. Um, and I think that may be true. But politically, I'm not sure it's any worse than the United States. You don't have hundreds of candidates running around supporting an insidious big lie about elections were stolen and still loyal to a disgraced uh, ex-president. So I think things are politically awful in the UK, but I'm not sure they're worse than they are in America. You're the American columnist for the FT. Am I being unfair to my country? No, I think things are much more existential in America. I mean, Britain's like the worst is over and it's bad. Um, but it's not actually sectarian. So, you know, I mean, you've seen the British electorate swing to Labour massively. Um, you just don't have that here. I mean, that Trump's floor and Trump's ceiling are pretty close together. Um, so that, that sort of tribalism of political affiliation and partisanship is absent in Britain. Um, I mean, they've been taken for a ride by the Conservative Party, that, and they can't undo that ride. But they're pragmatically switching to the party now that Jeremy Corbyn's no longer leader that, you know, would, in their view, um, undo all the other unforced errors uh, that this government has. America, um, it is much more existential. I, I mean, I, I, I have a sort of mocking, self-pitying, and sometimes quite sort of mirthful laugh about how Britain's messing things up for itself. But, you know, I don't see what I see. I don't feel what I feel in terms of the dread about what's possibly and maybe probably coming down the pike here in America. And, and that's, that's just bigger stakes, not just because America's bigger um, and way more important, but because the actual future of the Republic is on the line. And uh, it's, hard, it's hard to sort of spin your way out of that. Boy, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. James? So let's go to a subject near and dear my heart, Ireland, and particularly to the Irish border. I was at my family reunion in Monaghan in early September. And because of but on mine, there's a village, I think, Crossmegan, where they have a monument to the Bobby Sands and the other 10 people who starved themselves to death on the H block. And no one dare touch that monument. But one of the, and I read, and I think this is correct, Northern Ireland is now a majority Catholic country. You know, you remember the Seamus Heaney quote, uh, the great poet, the, the Biden's favorite poet? He was asked, um, uh, he asked somebody whether they were um, Catholic or Protestant, and they said they were atheist. And he said, yeah, but are you atheist Catholic or atheist Protestant? <laughs> um, you know, I suspect that, you know, the younger Northern Irish... Well, don't care. Yeah, really don't care. I mean, there are these sort of horrific legacy um, communal um, armed people with the buried arms, um, uh, but they tend to be older. Um, mm -hmm. And what's so frustrating about one of the many frustrating things about Brexit is really just time and, and new generations and travel and the fungibility of who you are, because you're in Britain, you're in Ireland, you're in Europe, you know, just was easing the pain um, gradually of this crisis and Brexit's brought it right back. But yeah, would Ireland, I mean, my wife's Irish, as, as you know, um, would Ireland want uh, Northern Ireland um, to join the Republic and unify the island? Uh, 
you know, they don't get majoritarian, they have a different electoral system there. They have coalition governments. Would mm. you really want the Orange Party, the Unionist Party, to make the difference? And it would be like Orthodox parties in Israel. That's what price can they extract for keeping a government in power? Would create its own massive problems um, and destabilize what has been a very happy story for the Republic of Ireland in the last 30 years. It's been an amazing political, social, and economic success story. Right. Importing unionists is not a way to continue that success story. So I'm not sure it's a slam dunk that right. Ireland's going to be united, even though the, the demography is on its side. Yeah, as a cab driver said, I think there's six counties in Northern Ireland, I don't know, uh, 30, and, and that's not the exact number. I said, what do you think about, uh, you know, Northern, you're into Northern Ireland? He said, hell, we can't run the 30. What we're going to do is six more, <laughs> which is the typical kind of cab driver's <laughs> reaction to, to to something like this. But, uh, you know, I, I just look forward, I'll, I'll let you go. You're right, and, and young people are getting increasingly secular. And religion tends to blame young people. Well, maybe young people have a good point that you wouldn't want to be associated with the Irish Catholic Church, which was one of the most horrific sex scandals, you know, maybe as bad as ours. And the Anglican Church was just sitting there to prop up an existing hierarchy. So I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I kind of understand where young people are coming from, that they don't feel the same attachment. They're, they're frankly, dev, the church has let them down more than they've let the church down. That's my observation. I'd agree with that. Um, uh, and, you know, Ireland, in, when it had its divorce recommend, referendum, uh, 30 years ago, it would have been unanimously rejected. Uh, when it had it, like, three, four years ago, whatever it was, and the um, uh, abortion one. And the gay one, too? And, one yep. or two, and the gay one. One or two counties voted against it. I think Donegal, um, you know, which borders Northern Ireland. And that was it. It was a clean sweep of the other 25 Irish counties. Um, this is uh, this is not a Catholic church-driven country. Um, so, before we go, I'll tell you one story. I met another, the Irish James Carville, was about 12 years old from County Meath. And uh, we took a picture together, and he had a soccer jersey on. And some one of our friends noticed it was Paris Saint Germain. He put in English. There's no Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> Soccer jersey on an Irish kid from County Meath, I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, this you won't pick this up, but today in the Cricket World Cup, right. Ireland beat England in cricket in the World Cup. Wow. Wow. You know, cricket, both of them is the second most popular sport in the world. Yeah. Behind yeah. behind soccer. Behind soccer. Yeah. But not not very far it, ahead of American football, basketball, anything. Is the India Pakistan? Does it, can Ireland play with like India and Pakistan and those other kind of countries? You think? Uh, look, I mean, England's supposed to be this time in the top three with India and Australia. Ireland could beat India, and if that happened, you know, I mean, they beat the West Indies, which is also the Caribbean. Which is right. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. And they're now beating England. So this is like, whoa, they're, they're getting good at this. Was that a big blow to English pride when they lost uh, to Ireland? It was good for my marriage. <laughs> that's a man that looks that's you a man that knows how to look at the world you didn't tell her who you were cheering for did you Ed <laughs> no I said I'm neutral uh, Ed <laughs> we want to keep up this uh, streak of you being our most popular and frequent guest because every time you really enlighten us thank you so much and we'll yeah, be back with you sooner rather than later okay oh, it's always a delight you're my favorite people 
Thank you, Ed. As you are, always. The great Ed Luce. Ed, stay on. One of the most anticipated debates of this political season was in Pennsylvania this week. John Fetterman and uh, Mahent, I, I'll just say Dr. Oz. And we have uh, a great expert, uh, Jonathan uh, Tamari, who is the chief political reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, covered that debate uh, Tuesday night. Um, Jonathan uh, Fetterman, who suffered a stroke five months ago, set a low bar but he didn't reach it. As you wrote, he struggled throughout. He consistently failed to follow up on some of Dr. Oz's false claims. Um, how how bad is this for him? Is it recoverable or, or not? That's something we've been trying to gauge all day today. And, and there's a lot of Democrats who were already pretty worried about this race before yesterday. And they're even more nervous this morning because you know, things were trending towards Oz in recent weeks, and this would seem to give him even more momentum. The one thing that a lot of them are falling back on, or the two things I should say they're falling back on, is that it's very late in the day. Uh, early voting has already started. There's only two weeks left to go till Election Day. So how much of this will really sink in with, with undecided voters at this point? And secondly, that Oz did have his own what they think is a big stumble when he was talking about abortion and he said abortion laws should be between, you know, women, doctors and local politicians. And uh, the local politicians thing is something that Democrats are emphasizing very heavily and that they think could could weigh on Oz just as much uh, over the final stretch here. Yeah, I want to pick up on that in a minute. I mean, Oz obviously didn't have the problems that Fetterman has. He's a TV performer. He was slick, slippery, even sleazy at times. But he was pretending to be a moderate, reaching out to all sides after he ran as a right-wing Trumpite. He won because of Trump. And he evaded questions on gun control, minimum wage, and others. Will any of that, will all that get lost in the postmortems on Fetterman's health? I think somewhat because a lot of that has already is not really new news, to be honest with you. We've been asking him about those issues for a long time. He's been ducking uh, answers on his exact stance on guns for some time. He's been he's had the same position on abortion, even though he didn't quite articulate it that exact way. So that stuff was old. What was new on Tuesday night was seeing Fetterman on stage, kind of having to answer questions on the fly. And, you know, he hasn't done a ton of big events. And so that might have been the first chance a lot of people got to see him. So that's what I think was new and what probably is sticking out to people today. Yeah, I want to pick up on the abortion question that you mentioned earlier. Uh, I mean, no matter how you want to code it, what uh, I mean, one of the issues is should the state play a big role? Should politicians play a big role in abortion decisions? And if you codify Roe v. Wade, which I suppose is Fetterman's position, uh, that basically says the state for the most part ought to stay out of it. But when you take... Oz's answer at face value, that means a state could ban abortions totally. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what he said, is that it should be up to the states and it should be up to the local politicians. He's he's saying the federal government shouldn't be involved, and presumably that means in either way, in either setting a floor or a ceiling. And Pennsylvania or Texas or any place else could ban it. Uh, I noticed that Fetterman's, uh, for all his faltering performance, his team picked up on that literally minutes after the debate. So they obviously think that that may be, uh, you know, their life raft, uh, if so. But James Carville? 
Well, thank you, and, and thank you for being on here, Jonathan. Uh, first of all, it's no secret, but I'll disclose it up front. I was very much for Connell Lamb in a Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. It didn't do very well. Let's go back, because I, th- I think the critical decision, people are saying, should Fetterman have debated or not? I don't think that's the cri- The question is, should he have stayed in the race or not? Mm-hmm. So he obviously has let's call it a significant neurological event. And I don't think anybody could argue with that description. So they, he had to talk, and my understanding, he's not very, very close to his wife, and he's pretty, pretty, and that's fine. That's his choice. They knew that if they did this, they would have to do this. Do you have any reporting or any knowledge, any inside thing? Would they consider the fact that maybe we shouldn't run? to start with? We have never heard that. You know, the, the the campaign, to be honest, really downplayed the severity of this stroke from from the start. You know, when it happened, they, they made it sound like he was, you know, recovering pretty well, pretty much within a couple of days. They basically suggested that it was a bump in the road, um, that it wouldn't be a big deal. And, and the information about the severity of it came out very, very slowly and well past you know, the primary day. I mean, obviously the stroke happened just before the primary, but and so we never got the impression that he was going anywhere. This is something John Fetterman's, you know, he ran for Senate the first time in 2016. He's been building towards this. I don't think he would ever consider leaving this race. Uh, Okay. I I mean, obviously the, the, the event was a significant event. I mean, maybe in May or June, they were downplaying the significance, but they're not, there's no sense in downplaying the significance of this event today. It's obviously been exposed. And I, look, I desperately hope he wins. I, I said on election night, I was, you know, officially, you know, Louisianians for Fetterman, a group that big, that group is. But I, I can't believe that he decided and his wife decided we're going to go through with this. They had to know the severity of this incident. And, you know, it's, I'm 78 yesterday, you know, like most people live in, you know, mortal fear of something like this happening. It's going to happen. We know that. I, I just, for the life of me, in, in a, in, I'll say this it, with, with no gloating or anything, if Connor were the nominee, this race would be over. We wouldn't mm. even be talking about it. Right? And... and uh, but you agree with me that once he decided he was going to be in a race, he had to debate. He, he There was just no getting away from it. I, I agree. There are some people who said he should not have debated at all, but I, I don't see how you do that because then you just leave this vacuum open where you don't show up and Oz can spend two months saying, we don't know what his health status is. And, and you know, at least by agreeing to a debate, he stopped those attacks. And I will mm-hmm. say uh, on Fetterman, not that I'm here, I'm not here to defend Fetterman, right. but that he he has appeared better in other events. There are days that he has appeared far better than this, uh, taking questions from editorial boards, from reporters. Um, and so I think with any recovery, my understanding is that you're going to have ups and downs, and it seems like he had a significant down at this moment, but he is not. that's not typical of what we've seen from him, even though he hasn't seemed great all the time. He hasn't seemed right. quite that bad. You make an excellent point before I turn it over to because I've had people that said they were at a at an event with him, and he sounded actually pretty good. And and I actually went into this, with, I don't say high hopes. And, and I was at 
the basketball game in, in you know seven minutes into it, you can imagine what my phone looked like. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it, it, this is an interesting thing. The only thing I'd say, and this is my observation, is when you look at the coverage and you look at the clips of the debate, they're getting better coverage than I thought they'd get. It's not mm. great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying <laughs> that they didn't point it out. But if you actually didn't see, I, I just hope not a lot of people saw this <laughs> and more people read about it, which is generally the case. Albert, back to you. Well, uh, Jonathan, I've got a real empathy for disabilities. We also know yeah. in our family, uh, you know, a fair amount about neurology. And it ought to be pointed out, his performance was, was dreadful last night. There is no disguising that. That does not mean that he has any cognitive issues. It is totally different to have word processing issues and auditory issues than it is to have cognitive uh, issues. And I, you know, he hasn't, I think he made a big mistake by not being more transparent, should have released his medical records now. But I think I'm right in saying that there is no indication that he has cognitive slippage. We have not seen that or heard that in any way. You know, he seems to be able to he knows the questions are, he, he understands what the conversation is about it. And he's, he just has struggled kind of, or struggles articulating his position at times. Although, as you point out, we haven't seen his full medical records to know exactly what that says either. Yeah, I think that was a mistake. Let me get back to the race. If this remains a margin of error race, the big question is whether Democrats can turn out the kind of black vote in Philadelphia that they need. Obama's coming in. Will that matter? I think it could. I mean, look, he's he's got huge numbers in, in Philadelphia, as did Joe Biden uh, in, in 2020. So I think that they both can help kind of pump up support in the city, um, especially, you know, Fetterman's a Western Pennsylvania guy, so he doesn't have those connections to Philadelphia. And I think the thing we shouldn't overlook, too, is the gubernatorial nominee, Josh Shapiro, right. who's from Montgomery County, just outside Philadelphia, is running way ahead in his race and has done himself a lot of work in Philadelphia. And I think Democrats hope that that work, you know, works for the entire state. Except it's harder to vote straight line or impossible to vote straight straight line, isn't it now? Yeah, you can't do it automatically. You have to check every box individually yeah. instead of just, you know, click, click in one box. You used to be able to. I grew up in those Philadelphia suburbs, Jonathan, probably before mm-hmm. you were born, and it was the heart of Eisenhower country. I mean, this was as Republican as it gets in America. Bucks and Chester and Delaware and Montgomery. It is switched now. It is now, you know, decidedly Democratic, even Chester uh, and Bucks. So my, uh, you know, you'll forget more about this particular race probably than I know, but my guess is that that uh, Fetterman's going to underperform in Philadelphia, that Oz will, James Carville used to call the middle of the state uh, Alabama, that, yeah, I don't think Fetterman will cut into re- the Republican edge there, but my guess is that the turnout won't be for Oz what it was for Trump. So that brings us back to those four suburbs, and that's where the abortion issue may matter, but and, and maybe the critical question in this election is, can Oz sufficiently cut into Fetterman's margin in Montgomery, Delaware, Bucks, and Chester? I agree. I think that is the big question. You've seen both campaigns put a lot of resources into those places. I saw Fetterman in Chester County Saturday night, and he brought in, you know, Amy Klobuchar to campaign with him, right? So very moderate uh, woman Democrat to help kind of reach that that audience there in Chester County. And Oz is campaigning today with Nikki Haley and talking about crime and, and how that affects the suburbs and, and can, can affect women. And so both are very 
clearly targeting suburban women. And that's where, again, Democrats think that Oz's comments on abortion last night might help them. With They think that the ads they're going to run on that on that comment uh, could be critical with that group. Well, as bad as he was as a debater, his ads have been uh, terrific throughout. Uh, so we'll see. Final question before I turn it back to James. You know, I thought the questions were fine on Tuesday night, but I was stunned that the issue of Oz's residence never really, really was asked. He voted in Turkey in 2018. He voted in New Jersey in 2020. And as well as New Jersey homes, he has a huge mansion in Florida, and he hasn't even moved yet into a permanent Pennsylvania residence. Does that just not matter? I think it does matter. I think I think it's kind of baked in at this point. I don't know that there's anything mm-hmm. more that Fetterman or Oz could say about that that hasn't already been said, to be honest, because it's been the main thing Fetterman has talked about uh, since the general election was set, pretty much. Yeah. James? So, uh, uh, Jonathan, obviously, I spent a lot of time in Pennsylvania in my earlier life. And uh, people, it, you know, a quote that is ascribed to me, and it's fine, is it's Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Alabama in the middle. Just so you know, the original quote was, is from Paoli to Penn Hills, it's Alabama <laughs> without black people. Because, as you know, Paoli is the westernmost stop on the main line, and Penn Hills is the easternmost stop on Pittsburgh. But uh, the, the state, it's kind of remarkable in Pennsylvania because you leave 30 years ago and you come back and the demographics are not that far off. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. like you're going to Georgia, you know, where you have these these huge demographic challenges. But but the, what do you think the suburbs? So we're looking at Shapiro. You also had the Mastriano aid, which is just one of the most blatantly anti-Semitic things. That, you don't need to comment on it. But, they, 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 I mean, just horrifically anti-Semitic comment about Shapiro and his choice of schools. Is that, will the Feldman people say that, look, we have a good chance that, yeah, we got hurt, but, but Josh will pick us up enough in the suburbs that we can overcome anything else? Is that a, a prayer or hope or anything like that? I think it's a hope for a lot of Democrats. I think the Fetterman campaign is a proud campaign, and I don't think they're going to, if they win, I don't think they're going to want to attribute their victory to anybody else but their own work. But I do think a lot of Democrats are hoping that Shapiro is the, the, you know, is somebody who can win big enough and carry the party and that Mastriano can bring down Republicans. The first, the ad that Fetterman released today wasn't just Oz talking about abortion. It was tying Oz to Mastriano. So uh, they definitely see that as as a way to to win over those suburban voters. I know you t- you have good contacts in all campaigns, but you may tell the Fetterman people if Shapiro wins by seven and they win by one, people will laugh in your face if you say <laughs> that Shapiro can drag you across the finish line. I mean, look, all of us in, in politics and I understand that are, are, are full of shit. Okay, <laughs> except for the reporters. Except for the reporters, I mean, that's degrees of being full of shit. So, before I let you go, I don't, you know, the inquiry. The guy that covered us this is a long time ago, and probably you two will remember. It was a guy named Tom Ferrick, who was a very good reporter, mm-hmm. uh, kind of legendary inquiry reporter, and. Uh, it was really delighted that you came on, and I, I know you've been busy, and your insight is very valuable to our listeners, and uh, we appreciate you being on here, and uh, thank you very much, and I hope we uh, maintain a relationship going forward. Albert? Yeah, I do too, and I just want to slightly modify James's comments about the demographics haven't changed. He's absolutely right, except they flipped. 
Western Washington and Westmoreland used to be the heart of Democratic country, and uh, Montgomery and uh, and Delaware used to be the heart of Republican. So it's just you know it's not a complete flip. Uh, and I would I, don't comment on this, Jonathan, but I would be very surprised if Shapiro doesn't win by double digits. And if that's the case, and going to James's scenario and. Fetterman ekes through. Uh, they're crazy if they don't give credit to Shapiro. Yeah, yeah they won't because yeah. campaigns, they, you know, they don't. And let me assure you, I, I, when we ran in 86, the, the, the Bob Edgar was the Senate campaign. There's always healthy tension in any mm -hmm. race between the gubernatorial campaign and the Senate race. It just is just part of. Part of the, part, it, it comes with politics. <laughs> well, we had as good a political reporter as there is in the Keystone State. Jonathan, I know what a busy day it is for you. So thank you so much for taking time and educating us about uh, this incredibly important race. Hey, James, now for our listener questions. You know, one of the hardest tasks every week is picking out which six or seven to use because they're all so damn good. But I want to start, I'm going to combine two to start. Jeff in St. Pete Beach, Florida says, where is my abortion ad? I need James to tell me why Democratic Party leadership isn't running this ad 24-7 on every platform. While Arthur in Washington, D.C. says Republicans continue to talk about cutting Social Security and Medicare. Why aren't the Democrats picking up on these cues and making them a top priority? Jesus, these people belong in the political consulting hall of fame. I mean, so <clears throat> the way you do it is to say, you know, the Republicans told you that they were going to ban abortions. You didn't believe them. They did. Now the Republicans are telling you that they are going to shut the government down, which would ruin the economy for everybody, in order to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare, which would devastate seniors, particularly on fixed incomes and time inflation. Why we can't execute this, I have no idea. I have tweeted this. I've sent it to the campaigns. I, I've said it on, on television. And, you know, it was like the crime legislation in the spring. Well, we can't do this. Well, we have a positive track and a negative track. Well, we got to do a bio. Well, we got to do anything. The excuses that you hear for, for and, and they just give it to you. So, so. Uh, Rick's, you know, Reagan in 1960 says so Medicare is socialism. Then he tries to whack the whole thing in the early 80s. O'Neill comes in, you know, compromises some, saves the day. Gingrich tried to do it. You know, Clinton out-negotiated him, and, and that didn't work. Then Bush, after he won re-election, tried to do it. And then Rick Scott says, we're going to do this. And people like Ted Budd and, and, and Ron Johnson wholeheartedly concur. And then you have the Washington Post, Glenn Kelso, saying, well, it's not fair to say that the Republicans really want to do this. Oh, you look at the history of what they're doing. And, what, and now the presumptive speaker is saying, we're going to do this. Four presumptive Majority members of the budget committee are saying, we're going to do this, and we're not doing it because we're scared Glenn Kessler might be offended? It's stupid. Just so stupid you can't even... Don't get me started. It, 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 we, we, historically, people would say we'd lose this election. If we'd have been smarter, we wouldn't be doomed. We, if there's a dumb thing to do it, we do it. And for you, dumb reasons. Repeat again the ad that you've suggested. The ad says... 
the Republicans told you that they would ban abortions. You didn't believe them. They did. Now they're telling you they will shut the government down to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. I believe them. They will. That way you get the abortion in, you get the government shut down in, you get cuts to Social Security and Medicare, all 75% issues, and you get it all in one simple, truthful, devastatingly accurate spot. And, it's and an you ad, don't need anything else. It's an you ad you can run in, in Georgia, in Michigan, Ohio, Arizona, anywhere. Anywhere you want to. And it gives you. It gives you, it brings the abortion up, but it doesn't make you seem like you're just a, 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 a one-issue candidate. It brings government shutdowns, which are horrifically devastating and unpopular. And it gives you Social Security and Medicare, which traditionally, for good reason, been a strong Democratic issue and, and a problem for Republicans. And you just let it go by. Right. Because you're stuck right. on run your stupid fucking bio ad. Ooh, all right, listen to James, will you please, out there? Please. you got less than two weeks. Our next question comes from Brian in Port Washington, New York. He said, other than encouraging these colleagues to listen to more than one outlet, encouraging listening to Politics War Room, thank you, Brian, and other podcasts, and to keep an open mind, can you suggest other ways to break people out of their media bubbles? I can tell you what I do every morning to try to stay informed. It's not as much as I used to do. First of all, I don't watch any morning television any longer. Uh, but I, you know, I, these are, first of all, I read the New York Times and the Washington Post because I think they're, I think their reporting, you know, is pretty darn straight and you can learn a lot. Uh, and then I have uh, a bunch of newsletters that I read, which aren't long, but you're really important. I start, well, I start with the Atlantic, which isn't really a newsletter. The Atlantic, every, the Daily Atlantic, Digital Atlantic, every single day has two or three pieces that you learn a lot from on politics and other issues. And then the New Yorker, uh, and uh, there's an Ian for foreign policy and Ian Brenner, Geo Zero Media, where if I want to find out what's going in Colombia, he'll have a couple paragraphs. That's all I'm really you know, need to know, but it's really, really concise and good. Our friend Judd at Popular Information does great investigative stuff on what the vested interests uh, are doing. And there's a woman named Heather Cox Richardson who has a really interesting uh, daily uh, daily newsletter. And I'm sure I'm missing a few, James, but boy, if you read, and the bulwark, of course the bulwark. If you read all those every day, yeah, it's going to be a little bit, you know, moderate to slightly left of center. And maybe you can find one or two right-wing ones to counterbalance it. But you'll, you'll be pretty darn well-informed. You know, this is the larger question. I was teaching at LSU. All right. It, 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 people, the, the access to information is stuff that we could only dream about when we were in college. I, I mean, if you wanted to read the New York Times, you literally had to go to the library reading room, and you got it three days later. It was on a stick. Remember, you couldn't, you couldn't, I'm sure you had the same experience when you were at Wake Forest. You, you couldn't read the inside of it because they, 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 they put it on a stick. And you had three newscasts. Uh, yeah, you had Sunday morning TV back then, but it wasn't. But I don't think that these, I don't think the average Wake Forest student or the average LSU student is as informed as we were when we were in college. I really, I really, I don't know how you prove that, but it's certainly not a lot more. In, in spite of having 
all of this available information. I, I'd say I, I certainly, when it comes to politics, there's no one I trust more than Ron Brownstein or Tom Etzel or, 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 or Rui Teixeira or, or any, you know, uh, Wasserman or Nate Silva or, or any. We never had people like that. Yes. I mean, I, I don't want to exclude someone, but I mean, some of the stuff is obviously, uh, it, it, it's excellent analysis. And But I, 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 I just think this, all this inf- available information, we, we have assumed that there was a correlation between the amount of available information and the potential amount of knowledge out there. I think information has grown up exponentially, also bad information, and knowledge is either stagnant or declining. It's it's something for people to mull about or think about. Well, let me tell you one, one I think, terrific story about your alma mater, LSU, and the journalism school there. My old colleague, Len Apcar, is teaching there now. And as you know, as newspapers and news sites uh, have become more diminished, the coverage of state legislatures has really uh, been poor. And he's got those journalism students at LSU covering the state legislature. And they are sending out reports that people, you know, in Shreveport and other places wouldn't otherwise get. So I'm not disagreeing with your overall point, but there's some encouraging things going on. And I think what they're doing at LSU is really great. That's a very encouraging thing. And I'm glad you brought that up because I would hope that other journalism schools yep. would, would be able to do the same thing. And, and of course, you know this, being a, a, a lifelong newsman, a news person, I should say, <laughs> you know, the coverage that you get of Washington is, is pretty plentiful. You know, it, I don't know if it can, we can argue with it. But what you don't get coverage of the state legislature, you right. don't get coverage of the city council, you don't get coverage of the airport board, you don't get coverage of the water in sewage board. You don't get coverage of the mosquito control board or, or the local school board meetings. And boy, if, if, if you're like at, at LSU or, you know, University of Missouri or Georgia, I don't know, about University of North Carolina, wherever I have these, you know, you know, real, you know, Northwestern, you should be, they, they should be, they should be covering the Chicago city council. And they would pick up slack that, that, is out there just naturally because of the cost cutting and it would be unbelievably valuable educational experience for these, you know, students, a lot of them graduate students to learn how to develop sources and cover things and read budgets and, you know, file FOIA uh, requests and, you know, all of the skills that a good journalist can bring to bear, they can learn right here and they can supplement a big hole that exists in American journalism, which is driven by 90, not, not by intent or anything, just by just god-awful economics. And some of these, you know, schools of mass communication, uh, you know, and I think LSU is pretty well-funded. And I think that's true of most places that have this. But boy, with somebody would go through and get all of the journalism schools and all of the communications graduate programs and and you know, work on assigning these these young people real things to cover in real time and real life. I'm, I'm well, very, I would too. And up. you know, journalism schools are the natural place, but you can do it in uh, you know political science department. I mean, there's yes. lots of things you can do. And I, you know, you mentioned Chicago. The Chicago Tribune not too long ago had over 600 reporters. Today they have 125 to you know 140. You, right. With that, with those numbers, you it's not just investigative and initiative reporting you can't do. You can't cover things. They don't cover Springfield the way they used to. University 
University of Illinois Champaign has a great opportunity to do that. They may be doing it. I know Len Apcar is doing it down at LSU, but you're absolutely right, and it's an important way to pick up the slack. It's, it's, it, 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 it just wins on everything. It, 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 you can imagine how many governments they are in metropolitan Chicago. I mean, you know, how, you know, counties and all, towns all over the place, the airport, the, the, you name it, the schools, the, the, the whatever. I mean, there's just so much there that's left unattended to, and we know when no one's watching, you know, shady stuff happens. Right. It and sure if they does. know you're looking, that, that, that helps. James, our next question, too, or come from the same question, but it comes from Kevin in Concord, North Carolina, and Marty in Bessemer, Michigan. And they ask something that really is on people's minds. Do you think that November is our last chance to save democracy in America? What's the hope if we don't? <laughs> well, it better not be because we're going to have to, I'm afraid. If I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, maybe I'll be in a better frame of mind uh, next week. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, and everybody says, boy, if they do this, I'm going to leave the country. Well, I'm not going to leave the country. And, you know, hopefully it's uh, some guy from smack over Arkansas wrote to William Jennings Ryan. He said, fight them evolutionists the hell freezes over and then give them a round on ice. <laughs> well, we're going to fight these, these people to hell freeze over and then we can. We'll give them a round on ice, too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, it was always hyperbole before when you worried about, you know, if you were a Republican, you worried about, you know, Clinton or Obama. If you were a Democrat, you worried about Reagan or Bush. And you know, things you didn't like occurred, but it, you didn't worry about the, you know, the future of the country. It's different now. It really is different. And I'm like you. I ain't going anywhere. Uh, but uh, you know, there's there is genuine cause for concern. Uh, as as now, Luce said, you know, there, there's a a school of thought, okay. And I will give it to you. I don't endorse it, but I'm going to repeat it. And look, this is what maybe this is what we need. You know, it's an off year election. You were going to lose anyway. They're going to elect some really crazy people. They're already sickling. They're going to do all kinds of crazy shit. And the Democratic Party needs a reset. And we need a generational reset. We need an ideological reset. We need a geographical reset. All of that is true. And if you want to be an optimist, and I'm not saying we're going to lose, but I'm saying we have to acknowledge a possibility. I'm saying it could be a brutal election night. And I guess what I'm saying is maybe there is opportunity lurks in the background. And maybe... The and I, I, I don't know if I consider myself a, but in the current meaning of the word. Uh, I'm actually kind of a fan of the progressive era, to be truthful to you. Maybe, you know, and maybe we can get Ro Connor to explain to us what these people are thinking because it, it completely escapes me. And why great fear is, is they hate that those kind of people... I'm certainly not Roe. I don't think it applies to Jamie, although I, I, I'm devastated by them being on this. Maybe they can explain this to me because I sure, I sure don't understand it. Well, we, you know, we got to get them on. You're absolutely right. Right. Um, you know, and I think people people are genuinely worried. And James, you know, I think we can survive that in Washington as awful as it might be. 
Uh, I worry a little bit more about some governors who might be elected secretaries of state. Oh. If they elect the secretaries of state in places like Arizona and Nevada, there, there will be a big steal. And, and they will and do yes. everything they can to steal the election. Yeah, and, you know, what we hope is – it does thing is, you know, we, we don't factor this in. I literally cannot imagine Trump not being indicted probably before the end of the year. And, and I, I, I got to tell you that, you know, even very cautious people are saying, yeah, you know, and I just wonder, you know, and if we have any lawyers, and I'm sure we have any number of them, for somebody to produce a non-laughable defense to these documents. I, I mean, any lawyer, when they're faced with a saying this, they say, well, what, what defenses are available to us? All right, you know, if, if, if it's a valuation case, well, you got a lot of defenses, you know, who knows? And you could be yeah, just mucked up and they say it and the bank has... I don't understand. What's the... How is this not a... The most... The police hear something in a jewelry store and there's the guy's sitting there loading jewelry into a bag. <laughs> they have it on video. What's that? He didn't have a defense. I mean, I guess he could say, well, the door was open, okay? That's a laughable defense, but it's a defense. I don't know what is the defense of this. The, he, 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 the documents are not his. On multiple times, he was told they're not yours. So the defense is, well, I, I thought they were mine. I mean, I was present. I'm entitled to bring what I want. Well, you may, that's what she thought. Then here's the letter. Here's the letter. Here's the meeting we had. Here's the number of times. Here's the subpoena. I don't understand. Please, somebody, and and, and I'm not going to. I just can't think. I'm, I'm not very. Not a very good lawsuit, but not a clearly not a very good lawyer. But I know good lawyers, and I can't. And when you ask them, they just fumble around. Well, you know, there's none. There's no. There's no none. It, it, it's not complicated. It's simple. You had something that was not yours. You were told it was not yours. It was actually legally subpoenaed. I would be critical of the Justice Department only to the extent that, God damn it, took you this long? That's the only criticism that I can think of. Well, they want to make sure it's, it's airtight. I don't know. I can't, but, uh, how much more airtight can you be? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you're putting the, the jewelry in the bag, all right? The, 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 the camera has got you. The street camera's got you. The internal camera's got you. The beat policeman walked in and saw it. And by the way, you got a rap sheet from here, you know, from here to Oklahoma. Well, also, don't forget there are numerous uh, possibilities. It's not just uh, Mar-a-Lago, it's Fulton County, it's New York, it's, of course, yeah. January 6th. So, you know, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's going to catch up. The, the Mar-a-Lago thing is just, that's just as yeah. clean as it can be. And it cannot, I, I, and I don't think Garland will, by the way. I'm not saying this, that, that, I, that I think that, I don't think there's, I can see think there's zero chance he won't indict this guy. He just has to. James, our next question is Andrew in Los Angeles. He asked you, but I'm going to answer it, and then you can weigh in. Sure, He sure. says, can you explain the process for selecting a 
Speaker of the House. If the margin for the majority is small and the Republican caucus is split, is there a way for Democrats to get involved to support a Republican moderate and get them in for the sake of sanity? Um, Andrew, uh, the, the way it's done is quite simple. You have to get, if there are 435 members, you have to get 218 votes to become Speaker of the House. Doesn't matter where it comes from. So theoretically, you're right. And the Republican caucus has got a very big right-wing crazy element. And if uh, they told Kevin McCarthy, unless you do X, Y, or Z, we're not going to support you, then you theoretically could do what you suggest might be possible. The problem with that is Kevin McCarthy will do anything they ask. He, he doesn't believe in anything. Uh, he's got a spine uh, made of silly putty. And so anything that they ask for, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to become a powerful force. So uh, I think theoretically you could do something like that, but it's not going to happen. Well, I guess if you just wanted to, like, fantasize, it is possible they get a three-vote majority. At that point, Kevin McCarthy can't accommodate everybody, right? And, And, of course, a couple of things to keep in mind is you don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker. Anybody can be Speaker. You could be Speaker. I could be Speaker. The homeless guy on the street could be Speaker. And the, third, the second thing, as you point out, every vote is the same. The Democrat, if you, the majority party has a vote, every member has a vote, the majority party, one doesn't count more. I, 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 I kind of like said, well, you know, maybe Liz Cheney. I'll give you, I'll give you somebody else that, if, you know, so you got four Republicans said, man, we just can't abide by this. And they go to the Democrats and say, would you take Chris Christie for your speaker? And so, I don't know. Is, is that weird? He was a, a Republican. I, I had a bit, to be clear, I, I, I had an event with him last week at Hobart William Smith College. He's a very engaging guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's a real Republican. Trust me, he's not a rhino. Uh, but he's dealt with, He's made deals. He's had a majority of Democratic legislature for eight years. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe, maybe you end up with something like that. I don't know. But, but, if, you, but if you end up with a really narrow, I know if you end up with a 28-seat majority, you, you can let 20 people go. You don't care. Well, the problem with that is, well, you're right. Anybody can be speaker. Now, only the members can vote. Uh, and the problem with that, with your Chris Christie scenario, for example, is I'll tell you who would probably stand back that would be the crazy left. Uh, and uh, because they think so parochially, I think if you came up with that scenario, you might be able to get, you know, four or five Republicans. I'm not even sure of that. If you look at that Republican caucus after this election, there are very few uh, so-called, quote, moderates, end quote, left. But let's assume you could. I'm not sure you could get the Cory Bushers, uh, the Cory uh, Bushes to go know, along. But look, it, it, the chances that this is going to happen are really remote. The, the, the use of this is a kind of teaching tool to think about coalitions, the House, the, the way that it operates. It, it's, a, it's a very valuable tool, and they're going to have to come up with somebody. So, and if the, the, you know, if the Marty Taylor Greenlight says, we want this person, or we go, and, you know, you're still going to have some, you know, not as many, but all you need is four people that are not out of their minds which is you still could have, and say, so we just can't go along with this. I mean, it, it, you know. Never it, underestimate I, I, Kevin McCarthy's um, uh, duplicity I, I, and willingness to make promises that he can't keep. And as, uh, as Earl Long once said afterwards, he can just say, I lied. Um, <laughs> but uh, in any event. Yeah, Next, this it. is good. Jerry in Carlsbad, California. Oh, I said Hampton. 
I How would well argue Nixon's Southern strategy, Pat Buchanan and Kevin Phillips, Reagan's welfare queens, abolishing the fairness doctrine, and his states' rights campaign in Neshoba, Mississippi, are the origins of the modern GOP. Thoughts? I, I really am interested in this topic, and uh, I... Uh, is it Rob? Doesn't Robert Draper? We got to get him on. He's got to. Yeah, we're definitely going to get Robert Draper uh, on, on after on the election. The I, I, I tell you what I think is all of that. You know, the, all, that was coded. You know, and, and Lee Atwater famously said, "You know, and you, you can't say the, the word, the word, the word." And he said, "But you, you, you say things like, you know, busting or urban crime and." You know, basically, he said, you got to use dog whistles now. He was, he was almost lamenting the fact that you just couldn't go to all-out racism. I think what Trump did is he don't use, they don't, in, in the, the current Trump and his acolytes, they, they, they don't, they're not big on dog whistles. They just go out and say it. And I mean, some of the anti-Semitic stuff is, wow, you know, in, in, you know, when you start talking about good people at Charlottesville, you ain't speaking code. <laughs> you you speaking right. You speaking in plain English. Yeah. And no, you uh, sure are, Jerry. I would add to <clears throat> uh, who else built on that was Newt yes. Gingrich, who just poisoned the environment with his vindictive uh, viciousness. By the way, he was a total failure <clears throat> as speaker. He was he was brilliant in getting them there. And I read an interview this week from in a place called Puck. That long interview with with um, Newt Gingrich that acted like he was I don't know Winston Churchill or uh, some. I mean he was. He he is really a thoroughly discredited man. I hope young reporters will read a little bit of history uh, about Newt Gingrich, who I believe at one point, James, several months ago, said the January 6th committee, if Republicans take over, will be thrown in jail. He's not a serious person. He's a total fraud. But anyway, yeah, I'll just add right. him. <laughs> thus it was, thus it is, and thus it shall be. And I have no idea, but they do. And he, he, he never... It's a guy like that. You just wonder... I know he has daughters because he, he used to brag on them being pro-choice. I know he's got a wife. I, I, I said, man, you can't do that. My kids would like stand in front of me and the camera and say, Daddy, you, you don't do that. I don't think, I don't know, I don't I think that's a problem with Newt. Yeah, Terry yeah. in Palmetto, Florida says, Republicans are swamping Florida television with ads, mostly false. The Democrats are barely visible. Why? Uh, lack of money, different strategy. First of all, my impression is that Val Demings has done a pretty good job of, of, of raising money, though she's probably getting swamped. Two, two points to make. Number one, the Florida Democratic Party, as we've discussed many times, and James is an expert, is really, uh, you know, one of the least competent in the country. Maybe they've gotten a little bit better. So that's, that's part of the problem. But the other one is the Republicans are simply raising a lot more outside money. Their contributors yeah. are forking over much more than Democrats are. They realize the stakes. They seize. They want to seize the opportunity. And in a lot of states, is that outside money is just a, a, a huge factor. Yep. And, and, and you know, it, it, actually, the Democratic candidates are good getting donors, and you know, the stuff that that's limited. But where they come in, and Mitch McConnell, that the pollution industry just writes a two hundred fifty million dollar check. And they just take the expensive rates and they just swamp you, particularly in these house races. I mean, they, they just swamp you with negative ads, a lot of them on crime. Yep. Um, uh, it really is. 
the final question comes from Greg in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Oh, James, wow. James, this is perfect for you. Do you think GOTV calls are effective if the caller has a different accent from the area he and she is calling? In other words, do people in Georgia like getting voting calls from people in New Jersey? You know, it's a good question. And, you know, with polling, you, you, you know, that's another question. Do you find local people? You know, of course, a lot of this stuff is outsourced uh, to, to places in, in, in Asia. Um, if you're calling, you know, black voters, are you better off having a, a, a voice that people, you know, you can always, you know, I, 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 yes, there's some merit to it. But the question is, you got a... a, a low-performing turnout, high potentially Democratic vote, I, I think that you just do the best you can to try to get that person out to vote. And if if it takes somebody with a different accent to remind them to vote and they vote, that's fine. I, I, I understand it, but I don't know. Yeah, and also there are people in states like Georgia and North Carolina who are not native Georgians. They're not native lot. North Carolinians. Right. And so, yeah. so that accent, I mean, you know, they may, they may have more trouble hearing someone yeah. with a deep southern accent. So, I, you right. know, I think, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, you call them Atlanta Metro, you, you know, help probably right. two-thirds of people you talk to that wasn't even born in Georgia. Right. You talk northwest, northeast Georgia. You know, 95% were born in Georgia. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Final okay. point. This past Tuesday was a momentous occasion. The birthday of James Carville, who Cut. celebrated it predictably by going to watch his New Orleans Pelicans beat a very good Dallas team. That's the way everybody ought to celebrate uh, a birthday. So if you want to, you know, celebrate it with him, just send a note to Adpliticon for James. Uh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't look a day older, though, does he? Well, I'll tell you what, last night's game, and I, you know, you, you appreciate this and to the extent that we have uh, pro basketball fans. This is a game that you're doomed to lose. First, Dallas is very good. And this guy, Luka Donick, is, I, I think he's one of the three best players in the league. I don't think anybody would really argue with me. And we had our number one, Zion Williamson, our number two starter, and we had our probably number four starter, Herb Jones, who's really good. I mean, he's really good. We had all three of those out. And, you know, we were playing a good team. We came off a really tough loss to a really good Utah team. Uh, where both Zion and Brandon were out of the game. And, and I, I, I got to tell you, Willie Green is a, a, a coach that, that bears real, real attention. Uh, and, you know, I saw his comments after the game. He said, this is what you play for. This is, the kind of, this is why you're in the league. When you're down and out like this and you come back, and I, I, I love that. Uh, I love this team. That, uh, Mary and I went to the game last night. Uh, you know, of course, it's fun when you win. It's really fun. And I can walk to the game. You know, no, no issue. I, I actually have learned to get there like five minutes late, you know, because the first five minutes of the NBA game is not that bad. I don't like standing in line and, you know, waiting and everything. Just walk right in. Boom. It, um, so are you going to tell us what Mary gave you for your birthday? Well, I'll keep it a little bit to myself. Okay. <laughs> I think that's smart. All right. Yeah. Happy happy right. birthday, James okay. Carville. And yeah, thank you, everybody, and... for listening. So we come back in an hour, right? We come back in an hour, right? Uh... Let's acknowledge that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, a graduate of Yale Law School, 
is intelligent, even though we disagree with him 95% of the time. But someone needs to explain to him the meaning of the word recusal. Judges and elected officials recuse themselves when there's an economic, political, or personal conflict of interest or the clear appearance of a conflict. An example, the newest justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, is recusing herself from consideration in the affirmative action case involving Harvard as she once sat on that university's board of governors. Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, is not only a right-wing activist, but was a ringleader in the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen and in efforts to overturn the result. Yet Thomas was the only justice, not even the other five conservatives, to support Trump's dubious efforts to recuse himself from having to turn over documents to the January 6th committee. Now, this surfaced again this past week when Thomas ruled by himself that at least temporarily a court decision that Lindsey Graham, like any other citizen, had to testify before the Fulton grand jury investigating his involvement in Trump's efforts to overturn the Georgia outcome. Thomas said, at least for now, he doesn't have to. I have no idea what Justice Thomas and his wife discuss or don't discuss. I do know that these clearly present the appearances of a conflict and his lack of ethics. While no surprise, it is another stain on the Supreme Court. Well, my outrage is this, and I, I'm, I'm serious. Somebody has got to come on the show and explain the, whatever we call it, the progressive mindset to me because I don't understand it. So on June 30th, 30 Democratic congressmen signed a thing that basically urges President Biden to negotiate with Putin. Uh, I mean, forget for one minute the horror of this and forget the horror of watching the American right fall in the line behind a brutal criminal dictator. And then... It is, it, it is think is so stupid, it doesn't make sense. So no one knows anything about it. So it gets released right before the election. And, of course, everybody goes crazy. Then they say, well, some staffer leaked it. Oh, really? I mean, come on. And it just is one, like, goofy. And, and most of the people on there, you, you just don't expect very much from them. So you're not terribly disappointed too. That I, I, and I, we just got to get an answer from Ro Connor and Jamie Raskin. Just what in the hell were you thinking? Just what were you thinking? To, to, you know, these Russians are filling up boxes of teeth they pull out of torturing people. I, I mean, what are you... In the, the, maybe the most successful foreign policy initiative since World War II, what, what, what Biden's been able to put together in the Ukraine, and you got 30 House Democrats stepping all over this. And, I, I, you know, I, I know what Pramila Jaipal or, 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 you know, Rashida Tlaib are thinking, you know, not very much is the answer to that. But what the hell were Bro and, 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 and Jamie Raskin doing fooling around with this crowd who is just all about, look at me, performance, 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 and we don't care if we cost the Democrats votes. We are just morally superior people. It, it, it's just disgusting. I, I, I can't... I, it, it, the, the, the thing that, that really gets to me is people actually send money to these people. I don't know what they're thinking. James, I asked uh, both Raskin and Ro Khanna, uh, that very question. I never heard back from Raskin. 
Uh, Connor wrote me back uh, this morning saying, uh, look, it was a mistake to release that. Uh, I have always voted for Ukraine aid, and let's discuss further it, which is a at best a semi-excuse. No. He shouldn't have signed in the first place because he is a good guy and a smart guy. But right. you're absolutely right. This, this was so stupid. And to blame it on staff, I mean, among other things, substantively, it's absolutely indefensible. But politically, right now you've had... Oh, you've had several stories. There is a Ukrainian-American population heavy in heavy. parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio, and there's stories, Post had a story, Wisconsin. the Washington Post the other day, they are moving, they, they have been really loyal Republicans by and large because of anti-communism, and this time, because of the Republicans you know, taking a dive on Ukraine, they've been moving to Democrats. This gives Republicans the perfect counter. It was, it was beyond stupid. But it's not just politically stupid, which is massively politically stupid. And so one of the councilmen from Southern California named Jacob said, well, you know, politics is timing. I wouldn't have signed the same thing today. Well, why did you sign it on June 30th? And as far as Roe Hanna saying it was a mistake to release it, no, Roe, the mistake was signing the thing. That was the mistake. And, you know, if you, you wanted to explore diplomacy, who doesn't? Okay, we're, we're, that's wonderful. We all like diplomacy as opposed to war. Well, you remember Congress when you call somebody in the State Department and say, well, what diplomatic outreach do you have? I can tell you where it is. Putin ain't not listening to any democratic outreach. How are you going to, you know, negotiate with somebody that the last thing in the world they're going to do is a criminal his word means nothing. He's torturing people, killing people, and you're a, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. I I, I just don't get it. I, and I I'm, I hope Roe comes on the show because there's a lot there's there's a lot I don't understand about this. I, I would be more than willing to have him try to explain it to me, but I'm I'm a pretty skeptical audience here. Yeah, uh, I totally, I totally agree oh, with you. Man, but uh, let's. Like, all right, I'll ask Roe to come back on. It's, it's borderline treason. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more than borderline stupid. Absolutely, oh, uh, no, absolutely, yeah. and politically. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room, James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, The Economist, Checks and Balance Podcast, Real Paper, and The Jordan Harbinger Show in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.